And I'm McKenna. And together we're the Daily Profcast. We're two long-distance besties who share a love of Harry Potter. We hope you enjoy the episode. I want everybody listening right now to know that McKenna has green screened herself into a scene from Prisoner of Azkaban where Harry and Hermione have turned around and just seen the Grim running after Ron. And she looks very good. I can, you can put her in the movie. I could be an extra. You can be in, in that one scene. You're just there witnessing. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Daily Propcast. We are looking at the very end of Prisoner of Azkaban today. Yeah. So this will be broken into two episodes. But Aaron and I will be, we're sitting down right now to do a marathon of recording chapter uh, 16 to chapter 22. Yeah, so I think we'll break it up chapter 16, 17, 18, 19 as one episode. And then part two will be 2021, 22. But we're going to record them all right now because there's, you can't break it up. There's so much to talk about. You can just do it in one. It's so good. The end of this book and then we're excited to do the movie. And then I'm particularly excited to get into Goblet of Fire. I'm particularly excited to share our casting, our fan casting for this film. Yeah, there's a lot of good ones to cast. Yeah. And I think we said in this one as well, we're going to cast James and Lily. So yes, and theoretically recasting for a 2020, well, 2021 now remake, Mm -hmm. we would see James and Lily in book one or the first film in the mirror of Erised, but I would hope that if ever there were to be a remake of the Prisoner of Azkaban movie, and I'll probably repeat this when we have our film episode, I would hope that at least during the scene in the shack where Remus is describing the backstory with all the marauders, that there would be a lot more flashback to the marauders at school where we can see James and Lily or during the first war. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's why we decided to cast them in this sequence rather than in Sorcerer's Stone. We can talk about that when we get to the film episode. Anyway. I'm excited for all that. But for now, we are kicking it off in chapter 16. It is late May, as we learn. Everybody is hard at work studying for their owls and their newts. Yes. It's late May, and then we eventually get to early June by the end of the chapter, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank yeah. you, because I wasn't sure about that timeline. Yeah, we progress. Pretty, we get them studying, and then they take their tests. Like, it's all right. condensed pretty quick. Right. Um, right off the bat, I think this is the first time that we officially realize that Percy wants to work for the Ministry of Magic. I think it's sort is of it? hinted at in other places in the book and in previous books, but this is the first time he outright says it. Okay. And that's a dream that's going to eventually be realized for him. That's true. Yep. And this is also the first time where we learn more about what academics are like at Hogwarts. We learn that they take their OWLs and their, I guess we just say newts, but. Nastily exhausting wizarding and ordinary level wizarding tests, something like that. Our friend Anthony, Captain Fisman on TikTok, he is a stickler about saying like OWL. And EWT rather than as opposed to owls and newts. Yeah, it is funny that that's the acronym, though. Yeah, it's you're right. It's funny for a series that takes place in a school. There's a disconnect in how much we know about the function of the academic curriculum. I wrote down the order of their finals. 
which I'm sure changes every year, but they take transfiguration, then charms, then care of magical creatures, which ends up being a joke because Hagrid is so upset about Buckbeak. Watch the worms. That's so fun. Yes. And just make sure the worms don't die in like however long their class period is. Then potions, astronomy, defense against the dark arts, and divination. The defense against the dark arts final ends up being one of the coolest sort of school-related things I think we see in the series. Lupin takes everything maybe not everything but like some big things and some big units they learned over the course of the year like practical magic how to deal with when you face this and creates this obstacle course for the students where they have to is it I don't remember the order but they face a Grindylo and then they have to avoid bad directions from Hinky Punk right yeah and then they face a Boggart in a tree trunk and we find out Hermione's Boggart Yes. Because she didn't get to face it in class. So what was Hermione's Boggart? So Hermione's Boggart is Professor McGonagall telling her she's failed all of her her tests. Her and she's freaking out because she thinks it was real. And yeah, and she's just poor, poor Hermione. Hermione. <laughs> to have to deal with that, especially in front of all of your classmates, is just awful. And then especially when you're dealing with so many extra courses. Right. It, it, just poor girl. Poor girl. And interestingly enough, you know, Harry, who's not necessarily known for his, for excelling in academics, he is, out of the trio, the only one who passes the test, totally. Yes, because Ron gets tripped up by the hinky punk. And yeah, and Harry, throughout the series, Harry is sort of seen as excelling in defense against the dark arts. Um, Like, that's a good subject for him. And, And it's kind of an argument of the fandom as to why Harry should have eventually gone on to be a professor at Hogwarts as opposed to, or perhaps after being an R at the ministry. Yeah. That, after he I, graduates. I really like that sort of headcanon. I think he would have, especially we're going to see it in Order of the Phoenix, just what a natural gift he has for teaching. And I do think a lot of that comes from sort of seeing the way that Lupin teaches particularly totally. is really nice. And I love Lupin's like Montessori hands-on learning approach yeah it is like Montessori oh my god I love him so much I think that might come from perhaps after Lupin graduates obviously he's in the order of the phoenix with the other marauders and he's doing like marauder singular (laughs) oh oh you mean I'm sorry you mean first wizarding war excuse me yes yeah first wizarding war so he's doing he's in the order of the phoenix he's doing practical combat like He's literally basically in a war. And I'm sure there was a lot of things, hands-on knowledge. He wished he he wished he had learned in class. Yeah. Rather than you know, and having we don't to really... sort of like pick it up as he goes. I mean, that's sort of like the headcanon in my head for why he's maybe more of a hands-on learning teacher rather than a open Absolutely. Kind of. Absolutely. I do I do think it probably stems from his experience during the first wizarding war. And it's like we don't really know where he gets that experience. I mean, I'm sure there was a bit of when, you know, him and the other people in or around his year at Hogwarts joined up after they graduated, Lillian James, the Longbottoms as well. Well, they had been Aurors, but it's like, where did they get that training? And I wonder if like, and probably had to put them through a training period that maybe wouldn't have dealt with red caps and hinky punks, but like, but like a similar sort of hands-on tactical 
approach to learning this stuff. And so that's probably where he derived his, his sort of method is maybe from Albus and probably more predominantly Mad-Eye. Yeah. And I I sort of like the headcanon in my head too, is that I'm sure all of the younger members of the Order of the Phoenix were like dueling each other for practice and sort of like pushing each other to learn new skills and to do better. And so I think probably all of that in my head is why Lupin is just such a good hands-on teacher and it's just really interesting that we're going to go from this and then in the next book spoiler alert Alistair Moody is going to be the defense against the darker teacher or and then we're going to go from like that kind of learning maybe more like open and expressive learning to Dolores Umbridge in book five who just only wants to teach out of the book and we've all had those different teachers right and yeah. so, yeah, and so I think it's just interesting, and I really appreciate his his take on defense against the dark arts. He's um, so good. He's such a good teacher. You know, he's so pure. It really does <laughs> make me wish that Harry had become the defense against the dark arts. Yeah. Yes, that's a big fandom uh, debate. They finished their defense against the dark arts final. They have not gone to divination yet, but they are walking back, and they see Fudge on. They're on his way to, I guess, go talk to Hagrid. He, yeah, he's like arriving at the castle and they see him on their way back from that. And then they go to their divination final and things are just looking really bleak for Buckbeak. And Ron is pissed because he's like, I've spent all this time researching how to get Buckbeak off. How are you telling me that? It's not going to matter. And it's really sweet, actually. I don't think I mentioned this in the last episode, but I do find it really sweet that we sort of see Ron, especially in the films, he's sort of like, eh, about school. Like he's not as, he's, he doesn't like not get good grades, but he's not as interested in school as Hermione. When it comes to something that has to do with one of his friends, he just dives into those books and he's like very studious to try and help out Hagrid, which I think is very sweet. I agree. I think it's, well, anyway, so they get to Trelawney's classroom for divination. Everybody's lined up. Because the final is individual. Because the final is individual. It's just, just like so awkward. Couldn't she have just given them a time? Well, I guess Trelawney's not organized, so no, she no, probably yeah. couldn't have. But if it was my class, I probably would have given everybody a time to show up. So Harry's in his, his final. Ron has gone before him and Ron was kind of like, I just made some stuff up. She wasn't very pleased with me, but just like, try your best. And Harry's like, okay. So he goes in and he's like making stuff up. Suddenly Trelawney goes into this state and she goes kind of rigid and her voice gets really harsh. And it says it's quite unlike her own. And then she delivers this prophecy. And I want to read straight out of the book what it is. The dark Lord lies alone and friendless, abandoned by his followers. His servant has been chained these 12 years. Tonight before midnight, the servant will break free and set out to rejoin his master. The Dark Lord will rise again with his servant's aid, greater and more terrible than ever before. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will set out to rejoin his master. And then her head kind of bobs forward. Harry's sitting there freaking out because this is terrifying. That's terrifying. And Trelawney's like, I don't know what just happened. What are you talking about? Which is funny because, and I just think it's interesting that she's like, no, you're mistaken. I didn't say anything like that because she's done this before. She just happened to her at her interview for the divination position. So she should know that this is like something she's prone to. Well, I mean, not prone to. This is only the second time she's ever done it, according to Dumbledore later. But like, she just like flat out is like, nah. What interaction is so strange. And it triggered a lot of 
triggered a lot of questions for me. Do you think this is something that happens to all seers or just Trelawney? And, and what triggers it? Does it have to be like the right circumstance? Is it when relevant parties are available to hear it? Is it like prophecies nobody's heard before? I, I just like wonder what triggers this to happen. Totally. And I don't believe there's any like solid canon information on that, but you, you can make guesses. Like, is it all seers that when you make a prediction, you go into this state or are, are some seers able to make predictions when they're sort of conscious and sentient of what they're saying? And yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a good question. It's, it's very interesting because it seems like with her first prophecy, it's very fitting that Dumbledore was there to hear it because he's sort of like then becomes the puppet master in this great scheme to take down Voldemort forever. Yeah. 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 And now it's very advantageous that Harry is the one who hears this because he's going to be part of this whole situation tonight with Sirius and Peter and whatever. Yeah. And when we're reading this, we are led to believe his servant has been been chained these 12 years. That sounds an awful lot like somebody who's been incarcerated. We're like, oh yeah, it's Sirius. Right. And it says, so his servant has been changed. His servant has been chained these 12 years. Tonight before midnight, the servant will break free and set out to rejoin his master. Of course, like you said, the obvious is that it's Sirius. But at this point, Sirius has been out of Azkaban for almost a year. Yes, and that's, you're right. That is totally the kicker in the prophecy. Thank you for bringing that up. So he's, he's already broken free. Right. He, he's, he's free. He's available to rejoin his master at any moment. Yeah. So, so that's, it's just a very smart thing that the author does here in writing is that she makes so many things that are so obvious that you sort of like jump to this initial conclusion and then that is broken down and then, and then there's subsequent a second layer. chapters. Yeah. Yes, totally. And it's kind of funny how quickly, like Harry's freaking out about this, but at the same time, it's like Trelawney makes this prediction and she goes into this state and he's like, okay, this seems a little bit more legit than the other things she's said to me this year. But at the, but at the same time, it's like, how can he trust her credibility after all the stuff she's said this year that, and McGonagall's like, oh, she always predicts one student's going to die. Don't think anything of it. And what I was going to say is because Harry seems to sort of forget this rather quickly. What's smart about this book is that we've built up over the entire course, 16 chapters have told us Trelawney is completely off her bat and she's never done a thing right. And she doesn't make good predictions. So now of course, Harry's not going to take much stock in this. <laughs> And Harry doesn't know about the first prophecy or that Trelawney has made it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So that that's that. <laughs> and then that's that. They get this note from Hagrid, Buckbeak has lost his appeal. Harry, like, miraculously, again, forgets about everything that just happened. And they sneak out under the cloak and go through the one-eyed witch. Do they go through the passageway? Or do they just sneak out of the castle? Oh, they just sneak snuck out of the castle. He had the castle. They had to go to the One-Eyed Witch Passageway to get the cloak where Harry had left it. Right. So Fudge is with two men who have arrived with him, one of which we get this imagery that it's like a man in a dark cloak and he has a axe blade under his mm -hmm. belt. And that is the executioner. And that's McNair. 
Walden McNair. I totally forgot that this guy was the executioner in Prisoner of Azkaban. McNair was a former <laughs> death eater. And this is another, this is another, yeah, totally. This is like another, we were talking about how like the ministry sort of messed up after the first war by letting a lot of people off the hook because they pleaded that they were under the imperious curse. And so many death eaters got off scot-free or scotch-free or whatever the phrase is. Uh, Walden, Mc, totally. Walden McNair was like a pretty big death eater during the first war and is now just like out and gets to execute people for the ministry how is that okay like i don't love but it just like fascinates me that this is happening as well in front of like children on a children's like campus for school yeah just like when why walking around with a big eye not use his wand to make the execution like why does it have to be by axe that's like so barbaric it is barbaric when there are much more humane ways of of you know like killing an McNair, animal we know you've used avada kedavra before like you yeah could just avada kedavra buck a beak wait does avada kedavra do you think it works the killing curse on non yes because that's how hedwig gets killed right yeah Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> oh, God, that's the worst. I hate that. Fudge could probably step in if he wanted to and, and do something about the Buckbeak situation, and he doesn't. Right, and, and you know, it was- Ron's quite upset about it, and Hermione's kind of, like, nudging Ron, kind of, like, holding him back, like, you need to stop because your dad works for the ministry. But at the same time, Hermione's sort of losing it, too, and I, I wrote down here, I love her heart for justice. Yeah, she, I mean, she, yeah, she does, but, you know, she's very conscious of telling Ron, you kind of have to hold back a little bit because your dad's job is, that's his boss. Oh, right, you right. can't go, you know, Same talking stuff, back yeah. to his boss. So that, I don't know, it's just, it's just sad, I guess, that government is already failing these children. Yeah, exactly. And then, so they go, they get under the invisibility cloak after dinner, they go down to Hagrid's sneak out to go see him and talk to him and be like well was there anything we can do can we free Buckbeak and Hagrid's like no because if you free Buckbeak now they'll know it was me they'll know they'll think that I freed him and I'll get in big trouble and I don't want to get Dumbledore in trouble and they're talking and they're just all very upset about this Buckbeak situation and then Hermione goes to grab Hagrid's loyalty to Dumbledore always unfailing absolutely absolutely won't won't tolerate any any bad things said about it and never wants even if it could help Buckbeak he wouldn't betray, he still wouldn't betray Dumbledore he's very loyal to Dumbledore that's a, something that continues throughout the course of the series mm-hmm. and then Hermione goes to grab a milk jug for some tea at Hagrid's cottage his little cabin and they find Scabbers who we've thought was dead right just just last chapter. Hermione and Ron have stopped fighting and come to a truce, but they were fighting because Ron believed Crookshanks killed Scabbers. And Crookshanks probably would have. Yes, as we're later going to find out. Yes. Crookshanks, not a fan of Scabbers, but... But they, they find Scabbers. He looks horrible. So I want to know, what do you, why do you think Scabbers has chosen to hide in Hagrid's hut? Hogwarts grounds is expansive. There's so many places he could have gone to hide. Why Hagrid's? Well, that's a that's actually a great question because like he he probably needs somewhere where he can get something to eat. So Hagrid's fridge, there's food, but I'm there is no doubt in my mind that while the Marauders were at Hogwarts, Peter figured out how to in rat form get into the kitchens. 
Mm-hmm. Like, why didn't he just go to the kitchens? Like, the kids can't get in there. So that's why he's ha- hiding in Hagrid's hut so that the trio would find him and it would further the plot. That's why. Right, I know. It's just like... But it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make he any sense. Especially because Hogwarts. if Hagrid had found him in there, he would have returned him to Ron. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I guess the other benefit is, let's say Sirius Black in dog form comes waltzing up to Hagrid's cabin... Hagrid would take out like a shotgun or his, not a shotgun, his crossbow and kill him. Seeing this giant dog around the, I don't know, the pumpkin patch. <laughs> like, Do you think Hagrid didn't know that they were Animagus? Nobody knew. Animagi? Nobody knew. We're going to talk about that in a second. Absolutely nobody knew that they were Animagi except for themselves. Dumbledore knew by the end. No. Oh no, nope. Sirius tells Dumbledore. Sirius tells him, yeah. Right. Well. So he's in Hagrid's hut. They right. find Scabbers. He's freaking out too. Scabbers is like trying to get away. Scabbers is trying them. to get away. And this is a, I don't want to say a beautiful moment, but it's very symbolic at the end of this chapter. Scabbers is wriggling, trying to get away. And at the same time, the axe comes down. And that's like we the hear, end of the chapter. They hear, yes. Yeah, so they, they, the minister and McNair and Dumbledore are coming down to the cabin. The kids sneak out the back because they can't be seen because they're not supposed to be out of out of the school at this time of night. And under the they're running back up to the castle under the cloak. And as they're going back up, they hear the axe come down. I say running up to the castle, but there's a lot of writing in here that suggests that the castle is like not very far away and like sort of on an even plane from Hagrid's cabin, sort of like what we see in the first two films. Mm -hmm. Just the way it's written, it's like they can see the doors from Hagrid's cabin and it's like not a very long trip down to the Whomping Willow. So it's, it's sort of suggested that it's not like we see in the third through eighth films where Hagrid's cabin is sort of like down this big slope across the bridge but anyway I guess Scabbers might have hidden in Hagrid's hut too because we learned at the beginning of the chapter that they haven't been able to go visit Hagrid as frequently because of all the security so maybe Scabbers is like safe place to hide out there's food and Hagrid's always very nice to creatures yeah that's true and Peter would know that from his time at Hogwarts right yeah so that is the end of chapter 16 Chapter 17 is called Cat, Rat, and Dog. (laughs) Yes. So they're sort of reeling from hearing, not seeing, but hearing this axe come down at Hagrid's and they hear this like wailing and they assume Hagrid's just like bereft. And then Scabbers is freaking out in Ron's pocket. Ron sticks his hand down there to try and calm him down and he gets bitten and, and Scabbers runs away. Crookshanks is there, starts chasing Scabbers and we know that where Crookshanks is, the last couple times we've seen him, so is the dog. So, yeah, kind of another interesting thing here is Crookshank, Crookshanks manages to find them in the dark under the invisibility cloak, which is sort of like the second indication that we get that cats can see through the invisibility cloak because you, Mrs. Norris sees them under the invisibility cloak. You're right. I didn't think about that. And does it have to, do you think it has to do with vision so much as like a more heightened sense of smell in a cat? Yeah, it might be. It might also be they have very long whiskers, like they could brush up against it. I don't really know, but I think it's interesting that they cats just have, don't seem more to sensory have a probate. Yeah, that's true. I never thought about that. So Crookshanks basically chases Scabbers down the Whomping Willow, like into the Whomping Willow. Well, Ron catches, does he catch him in his hands or? Yeah, Ron catches him. 
but Crookshanks has chased him to the Whomping Willow, which is an ideal location to have chased Scavers. Also, if Scavers is running away, why is that where he would... I guess he thinks he can get into the tunnel without the kids following him, maybe, because he Mm -hmm. would know how to get into the tunnel. Exactly. But Ron catches him in his hands, and... Then who should show up but the, this giant black dog? He like pounces on Harry, knocks the wind out of him. Gra- Poor Ron gets absolutely like clobbered. These he next gets couple his leg broken. No, but like it, not just that. He like also like people fall on it. Like he just gets clobbered. These next couple chapters, poor kid, and he's thirteen. I keep thinking about how they're thirteen. This is all a lot to be happening to them. But then Sirius grabs Ron by the arm and he's dragging him down into the willow. And Ron like hooks his leg under a tree root to try and stay, but Siri, this he must be a big dog because he's pulling him and he pulls him tight enough where or hard enough where Ron just like breaks his leg mm-hmm. after hooking it on this root and he's getting dragged into this tunnel under this tree. And Harry and Hermione are trying to go after him, but you know the willow is smacking them. It hits them a couple times. And is it Crookshanks who? Yes. So Sirius taught him how to how to stop the willow. And he goes in and he touches the knot on the trunk of the tree and the willow stands still. So Harry and Ron are able to get past the Whomping Willow, go in under it. This is something that this is, this goes down completely differently than we see in the film, by the way, if you're somebody who hasn't read the books. And Hermione even says, how did he know how to do that? Crookshanks. Yeah. Now we, now we know he's a he. And Harry's like, he's friends with the dog. I've been seeing them like walking around together. So they, they follow this tunnel, end up in this creaky boarded up old house they figure out that it's, I don't know if they figure out that it's the Shrieking Shack yet, but they're in the Shrieking Shack and they hear something upstairs. They go upstairs. They're, they're being very sneaky and they, they leave the invisibility cloak, I think, in the tunnel and they go upstairs. Ron is on the floor, broken leg, just having a real bad night. And he says, it's not a dog. He's an animagus. And they turn around and it's Sirius Black and he has Ron's wand, which this is something that has always baffled me that may be just a small detail, but Sirius clearly doesn't have a wand on him after Azkaban. And then subsequently in the next couple books, eventually he gets a wand back. There's nothing to suggest it's not his own wand from before. I mean, he could have just went and had somebody get him a new wand, but that doesn't really work because you have to be the one to go in and get the wand. Right. And he's a wanted criminal. So we assume that it's his wand he gets back. And how does he do that? I think probably one of the order members has to like sneak into, I think they'd probably keep it at the ministry. They probably have to sneak sneak into the ministry and like fetch it for him or something. So Sirius uses Expelliarmus. Yeah, he disarms Harry and Hermione. Which I think says a lot about his intentions, right? He's not there right off the bat. He's not trying to kill Harry. Yeah, and Harry's not, not maybe present enough in the moment to be like oh he could have just thrown a killing curse at me like right now right and, and we've had this whole book build up to the fact that Sirius wants to kill Harry to as basically because he's the servant of Voldemort and he's trying to help like finish what Voldemort started but he doesn't he just disarms them. disarms him yeah and he's and he's not looking too good either he's Sirius who we know from previous chapters when harry was talking about oh he was this guy was really handsome in this wedding photo with my parents he like is not looking good he's got hair down yeah he was yeah (laughs) oh god serious broader serious just like even in the like 2012 tumblr fan cast with ben barnes i'm like 
what a beautiful man anyway but he's now he's not looking so good after 12 years in Azkaban he's got hair matted hair down to his elbows probably would still look nice on him but whatever I like men with long hair I digress my boyfriend can if you if you've ever seen my boyfriend this can you can have this theory confirmed but his eyes are like really sunken in and he's his skin's really waxy and spread thin over his bones he's probably pretty emaciated just not looking good he's not looking good I, I think the violence in the scene is hilarious. Like Harry's punching Sirius, Sirius is choking <laughs> Harry. And it's so funny that this is like their first interaction together. They're just beating on each other. And just a short couple of chapters later, it, this is going to have reversed so dramatically. I had this totally, and I had this image in my mind as they're like, they're sort of tussling on the floor. Because Sirius has just had this little speech that's, now that we know who's like knowing who Sirius is and his character is very sweet but when you first read it it sounds very threatening he says I thought you'd come to help your friend your father would have done the same for me brave of you not to run for a teacher I'm grateful it will make everything much easier and that sounds totally freaky but now after the fact now that we know who Sirius is your father would have done the same for me oh my god it's like totally and it's like this is their first interaction with Sirius as a human and it's it's how I imagine what Remus probably went through on the Hogwarts Express seeing Harry after he woke up from his nap and Sirius has seen Harry as the dog but like seeing him face to face now as a human is entirely different and I just can imagine how he gets really emotional later in this in this exchange and it's this poor man it's like looking at the face of his best friend the poor guy but I just imagine when they're tossing together on the on the floor of the shack, Sirius is probably like, this is a headcanon, but Sirius might be like having flashbacks to when Harry was like a baby and they were like, oh. he was just like playing with him in the on the floor of the Potter's living room. Can you imagine? I'm not okay. I'm, I'm so mad. funny. Lupin shows up, yes. And he disarms Harry and Hermione. Oh wait, yes, because they get their wands back. And he, where is it? Is awesome trying to army. read Black's mind him and black were so close for so long that they probably have a little bit of a like a connection into each other's minds and they probably have the same with james before we get to lupin arriving though i just i get so mad when i'm rereading this and realize there are so many lines that were given to hermione in the films that should have been ron's lines and it really takes away from ron's character so ron's the one who says if you kill harry you're gonna have to kill us too Totally. So yeah, so so Remus shows up and there's one there's one bit I want to talk about. Where does it say lie down, you'll damage your leg? Oh, Sirius says to Ron, is it Sirius or Remus that says lie down, you'll you'll damage your leg? And he like cares about Ron's well-being and it's really cute. And they should have sort of known from then. Where is it? Is it I can't remember who it is. I guess it's Remus, right? Yeah, I think it's Remus. Doesn't really matter. Anyway, so he he runs in. Okay, we have to keep in mind. This is the first time that Remus has seen Sirius since before the end of the Wizarding War because they stopped, we're going to read about it in a second, they stopped trusting each other by the end of the war. They each thought that they were the spy for the Death Eater. So they stopped trusting each other. They probably didn't see each other for a while, even before James and Lily died. They wouldn't have been like hanging out. Right. And Lupin was often on order business for Dumbledore probably with the werewolf tribes we know he was north of like in the north of the country at the time of the Potter's death and so this is the first time Remus is seeing Sirius in over 12 years which has to be very overwhelming 
And now, and he's, and he hasn't exactly pieced it together yet because he says when he comes in, he's, you're right. He says he's looking at black so intently. He seemed it was trying to read his mind. And then there's this great line. It says the professor walked to black's side seized his hand, pulled him to his feet so that Crookshanks fell to the floor and embraced Black like a brother. Cue me crying when I was Oh my God. I love them so much. I'm Um, undone. And and then Harry says, it says, Harry felt as though the bottom had dropped out of his stomach. Which, from Harry's perspective of everything going on, absolutely terrifying. That like, probably the most trustworthy adult in your life at this time in your life is suddenly like hugging the man that you think killed your parents. Terrifying. Hermione freaks out and she was like, I've been hiding this. I've been sitting on a bad boy piece of information. I've been hiding this secret for you. You're a werewolf. And just like. Blows his cover. Blows his cover. And there's this, there's this horrifying moment that like makes me so sad where Ron tries to get up and then sort of falls over and hurts himself. And Lupin tries to go over and help Ron and like sees that one of his students is hurt and goes to try and help him and ron goes get away from me werewolf and remus stop dead and like sort of recoils a little bit and god this poor man just like dealing with people and this is why he wouldn't have wanted the information to get out because there's a huge bias against werewolves in the wizarding world and they're seen as vermin yeah and like inherently evil so it's just it's just it's like it's an interesting moment where ron sort of shows how his opinion can change of somebody now knowing this new information. Right. And um, he sort of reveals the, just the general prejudice against werewolves. Like, mm-hmm. and that's kind of often his role in the series is to sort of like explain the magical relationships and lore and things like that, because Hermione and Harry didn't grow up in the wizarding world. So they don't yeah. understand yeah. things like Ron understands things. I think it's very but At the same time that comes along with these sort of, not not really in blood relation stuff because Ron grew up in a very I guess in the wizarding world we could call it progressive household where like even though he came from a pure blood family his parents taught him that like blood status does not matter whatsoever mm-hmm. but other than that sometimes we see these like microaggressions from Ron because he did grow up completely in the wizarding world anyway yeah it's very interesting so they jump to the conclusion that Lupin has been helping Sirius the whole time like Snape said he was which is not true because for the rest of this time until tonight, Lupin has thought that Sirius was who everybody says he was. Right. And then he, he gives the, the trio back their wands just to prove to them that he's not here to hurt them. He's like, I, here, you can have your wands back. Like, I, I'm not here to take them from you and completely disarm you. Here, have them back, but, but please listen to what I have to say because you've got it all wrong. Right, and it shows he very much believes in logic and I don't know, he's very much, he's so much like Hermione. Like he yeah. wants to explain it to them and have them understand rather than it be by force or like coercion because they don't have their defense and weapons. Yeah. And then he reveals, they're like, how did you know he was here? How did you know we were here? And Lupin was like, oh, I was looking at the map. And Harry goes, you know how to work it? And Lupin's like, yeah, I wrote it, douchebag. Like, like, I came up with this. Me and my friends came up with this. And he, I helped write it. I'm Mooney. That was my friend's nickname for me at school. So he was looking at the map. This does not, again, happen like it happens in the film where in the film, Harry mentions to Lupin that he sees Peter Pettigrew on the map. Right. But assumes that it was wrong. 
And I think it's sort of thinking about it now, that's weird in the film because if Remus had known that, he would have acted a lot sooner than he did. Right. But in the book, he confiscates the map earlier, but Harry has not seen Peter Pettigrew on the map. And he's looking at the map this night on June 6th and sees Sirius. the trio with Peter mm-hmm. on the map. He sees Peter's name with them and then Sirius coming for them. And that's why he finds them and, and goes down to the shack. He knows about the cloak because it used to be James's. And he, yeah, he says, I, I saw one of you, or two of you get dragged down. And R- Ron says, one of us. And he goes, no, two of you. And Lupin's looking at this rat. He like comes up to examine Scabbers. And he, Ron goes, what do you mean? Of course he's a rat. And Lupin goes, no, he's not, said Lupin quietly. He's a wizard. And Animagus said Black by the name of Peter Pettigrew. Dun, dun, dun. Crazy plot twist. Yeah, and I think this is a... I really think this is a big turning point in the series because it it just, it starts, Peter Pettigrew, he's a different kind of bad guy. Voldemort's power hungry and bad and he kills people. He's, he follows a more classic villain trope. Yes. But Peter Pettigrew is somebody who, his name is on the map. He was Wormtail. He was a marauder, a best friend. And somehow he has betrayed his friends to the point where they died he has faked his own death twice he has lived 12 years plus in a rat body hiding out like it's it's become so dark in a different way the end of this book it, it kind of like I think it takes it almost from like children's book to like young adult to adult yeah novel it's it's really quite disturbing and and when people in the fandom sort of try and discredit peter as being one of the marauders like oh he wasn't like they weren't really as good of friends with him it totally disserves this plot because what's so disturbing about it is he was their their one of their best friends Sirius Um, wanted him to be the secret keeper yes he was one of their best friends and and that makes the betrayal all the more awful and heartbreaking so a little bit about peter Peter was a Gryffindor with the three other boys, but he was a hat stall when he was getting sorted. He was, which means the sorting hat spent like over five minutes trying to figure out what house he would go into. He ended up getting chosen for Gryffindor, which is so interesting because everything about Peter's character from what we know is that like everything that motivates him is about saving his own skin. None of it is brave. It's completely cowardly and self-serving. Right. So he obviously is a Slytherin because that's what we are. Yeah, because Slytherins are all evil. I've read some like fanon that Peter met the boys on the train and like got into something with them. Obviously not canon, but just like fan theory that he got into some trouble with them and sort of like bonded to them very quick and was like, those are the people I want to be friends with. And he was fighting the sorting hat like trying to get placed into Gryffindor so that he could sort of like attach himself to James and Sirius. That actually, that actually makes total sense. In canon, what we know happened was Peter allegedly, which actually your, that theory makes more sense than what's actually in canon because what's in canon is Sirius and James met on the train and bonded. Remus was quickly became their friend, which doesn't make sense. And I'll explain why in a second. But then Remus was sort of the one who brought Peter in and was like, he's really nice, but like maybe the boys wouldn't have otherwise looked at Peter because he was he was like a little bit short, a little bit snivelly. 
judging a book by its cover, they're like, he doesn't look like sort of the bro we could have, but Remus is the one who sort of brought him in and made them three instead of four. That theory makes more sense because Remus has been isolated his entire life from children, his almost his entire life from children, his age. I don't think he would have adapted to having a friend group quite so quickly. So that doesn't make any sense. And then you're right, Peter... Peter's whole thing is he is always looking out for himself, looking out for people he can leech onto, latch onto to protect him. And the Marauders were those people for him at school. James and Sirius were the smartest ones in school. They were incredibly popular and they were the people you wanted to be friends with. That was like the ultimate social protection for Peter. Mm -hmm. But, you know, first Wizarding War, as soon as he, he was in the Order of the Phoenix, which probably didn't do very well there because he did he i'm just certain he didn't want to fight didn't want to be involved in conflict he just wanted to get out and be safe and as soon as the going got tough he defected to the other side because he thought that would protect him and eventually that led to because it says later that he had been passing information to the other side for a year before james and lily died so i don't think he joined with the intention of getting james and lily killed but that ended up being a cost of him joining if that makes sense it's so sad it's so sad but but going back to what you originally said you're right it's all the more devastating that he really was their friend it just he he chose his own skin over the safety of his friends right and it it's a really it's a very big adult concept especially facing these three 13 year olds who are best friends it's there's a lot of parallels and I just think it, it. I just think it kind of turns the series, and I sort of think from here on it gets really dark. It does. It absolutely does. So they they're trying to tell the trio. This is going into chapter eighteen: Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, which is a lot of backstory into the Marauders. And they're trying to tell the trio. The rat is Peter Pettigrew, and they're like, "That's insane! Peter Pettigrew's dead." And Sirius is like yelling. He's like, "No, let me at him!" And Lupin has this incredible restraint. He's like, "No, we've got to explain to them before we savagely murder our former best friend." And he starts to explain. He says, "I'm, I'm going to start at the beginning, but then you have to fill in the gaps for me, Sirius, because like, you know what really happened." And he's like, "I was bitten at a young age, became a werewolf, and I got to school and I made friends with James and Sirius and Peter, and they were my friends and." They soon figured out I was a werewolf and they still accepted me. I'm, I'm giving, this is major glossing over, but they found out I was a werewolf. They figured it out pretty quick, second year, I think. And, and they still wanted to be my friend. I thought they wouldn't want to be my friends anymore. And they decide to become Animagi to accompany Lupin during his transformations on the full moon. It takes them almost three years because it's incredibly difficult to master becoming animagi and like gaining that skill it takes this like whole process where you have to like hold a leaf in your mouth for a month it's very crazy you can go read about it on the harry potter wiki if you're interested but there's only been seven registered animagi in a hundred years so that tells you how difficult it is to do it (laughs) totally and the boys it takes them three years but the boys do it and they all become animagi Peter becomes a rat. Sirius becomes a dog. We don't quite find out. They don't really Worth say noting that yet. James and Sirius sort of teach Peter how to do it. Yes. It does not come easily for him. Yes. And they say that James and Sirius were like two of the cleverest students at Hogwarts at the time, which some, a lot of fan in like, obviously we know they're clever because they had to make the map and they figured out how to be in a magic, but a lot of fan in like paints them as these kind of slackers in school, which is not totally far-fetched, but I, I don't, 
I think they were probably very good at school, but they were those people who were good at school without trying. Right. You know what I mean? Like they didn't have to like study like Hermione and Lily was probably, Lily and Remus were probably different. They probably were very studious and that's why they are perceived as being really successful at school. Same but Remus, Snape, and Sir- I think. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But I think probably James and Sirius were those students who like didn't study and still got good grades. Probably aids to why Severus dislikes them so much. I yes. Think he was probably studying a lot and. Totally. Oh, oh, Snape makes me mad in these next couple chapters. Sorry, McKenna, I'm going to drag him. But so the boys become Animagi. It takes them three years. So by their fifth year, they become Animagi. And on their sort of like, Remus, Remus is tame around animals as a werewolf. So they can, they can be with him, but a person would be in danger around him, but animals are not. So they like wander around the grounds and Hogsmeade, they say, and they find all these secret passageways and stuff. And that's how they're able to make the Marauders map because they discover all these all these secret things about the castle on their sort of midnight traipses around the full moon. Now we need to discuss how this totally, this, this is the whole reason why Remus has been keeping the information from Dumbledore all year. We need going back. The Marauders are the only ones that know that they're Animagi. And then Lily is probably eventually brought into that secret by function of dating James. I'm, I had canon that Lily probably figured out Remus was a werewolf early on and just didn't say anything about it. But it betrayed Dumbledore's trust because Dumbledore jumped through a lot of hoops to make it okay for Remus to be at Hogwarts. He came up with this plan for them to take him into the Shrieking Shack every month and they planted the Whomping Willow and they, I'm sure that there was a lot of, he had to be taken care of a lot in the hospital wing after it and like with Madame Pomfrey and all this stuff. So Dumbledore like ended up doing a lot for Remus in order for him to be brought to Hogwarts. And the fact that Remus let, first of all, like his friends figured it out and then Remus let them become, I mean, didn't let them, they probably would have done it without Remus saying yes anyway. But the fact that Remus kept it from Dumbledore, that they became anima and that Remus knew that Sirius was an animagus and didn't say it even after Sirius was breaking into the grounds. That is a huge betrayal of trust, of Dumbledore's trust. And Remus was ashamed that he, if he told Dumbledore that he knew that Sirius had broken out of Azkaban and was able to get into the castle in his animagus form, that would have revealed to Dumbledore that while he was a student at school, he was keeping that secret from him that his friends were animagi. And he, so he didn't share that information with Dumbledore. Now it's a good thing for the plot. He didn't because then we get here and the trio gets to find out about that Sirius is not a bad guy at all. But if he had, he could have gone to Dumbledore way earlier in the year and been like, look, he's an animagus. That's how he's getting around. And they probably would have caught him a lot sooner. So Remus has betrayed Dumbledore's trust. And then he starts talking about the prank. Yeah, I think we discussed it a little bit last yeah. time. But essentially, I hope I don't butcher this. Sirius essentially played a trick on Snape, who was sort of trying to, I think, had a nudge that Lupin was a werewolf and wanted to sort of figure it out. And so Snape or Sirius basically sends Severus, this is when they're at Hogwarts, to the Shrieking Shack. 
Yeah. While Lupin is transformed, which would have killed Snape. And I think Sirius is just like, I mean, the only way you can explain that Sirius would have done this is that he's thinking Snape will see Remus and freak out and leave and like not talk about it. And we'll just get a good laugh about it, which is not what was going to happen at all. It's just the only way you can explain is like being a dumb 16 year old and not thinking. Yeah. Or you could say he didn't like Snape very much and didn't really care what happened to his personal well-being. Without thinking that Remus would get in huge trouble for this. Yeah, it was definitely... There had to be some oversight, because he he wasn't thinking. I I mean, I think that's generous to young Sirius, but we don't really know. We don't know if it was malicious or if it was a stupid prank. We really don't know. But we do know that it wasn't well thought out, and it could have gotten Snape killed, and as you said, gotten Remus in a lot of trouble. And so they basically, they recount the story... And, and Harry so, says, so that's why Snape hates you. And 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 Sirius even says, he's like not remorseful. Still. Yeah. Like, like well, you can read what you want in, in Marauder's fan fictions about like Sirius saying he's sorry and stuff, but he's not remorseful about what he did to Snape. He says it served him right. He sneered sneaking around trying to find out what we got up to, hoping he could get us expelled. Like he's not sorry about almost killing Snape. It's a, that's, that's a problem. I'm saying that maybe it was not so innocent like haha funny because Sirius doesn't have a lot of remorse and this is we talk a lot about the nuances of characters right like Sirius did a lot of good things in his life and will continue to do good things but he also did bad things he's not a a vigilante good guy all the time so anyway so the chapter sort of ends with Harry saying so that's why Snape hates you to Lupin and then Snape Comes, comes in, in and goes, right. that's right. Speak of the devil. So I have feels. So this next chapter, chapter 19, is the servant of Lord Voldemort. So as I always preface any of my discussions about Snape, I'm not defending him. But, you know, we talk a lot about, oh, my God, how would Sirius feel seeing Harry? Or how would Remus feel seeing Sirius? Imagine how Snape feels right now. Yes. He's pointing his wand at Sirius's face. This is the person who is primarily responsible for his torture and like bullying and misery at his Hogwarts years. And not only that, he's the person who's per- perceived to be responsible for killing for the person killing the- Lily. Yes, who Snape loves, like his his greatest love of his life. And this is the person who nearly had him killed for a laugh. so yeah no it's i can see the perspective but the response is awful yes the response is awful i just think there's a lot of a lot of feelings that go into this at the same time so i think you're right snape's looking at him and thinking this is the person who basically got lily killed lily would be alive if it wasn't for this person he doesn't know that peter pettigrew is there or whatever he of course but the author conveniently yeah, but I think he missed the part. I don't think he got in in time to hear the reveal of Peter Pettigrew. He didn't, but when they're trying to explain it to him, he won't hear of it because he's dead set on hurting Sirius and especially Lupin. He freaking like binds and gags him with an incarcerous spell. Like he's like he's a beast. Oh my God, I wanted to rip my hair out. I got so mad. 
he's and he stops calling him Lupin. He starts calling him the werewolf, like dehumanizing him. And he's gonna like drag him by these ropes out of the shack. Oh, I got so I wanted to jump into the pages of the book and punch him in the nose. Again, I'm not defending Snape. I think Snape blames himself for why Lily is dead. Oh, I do too. At the core of who he is, I think he blames himself. And I think something that all humans do when we feel a lot of guilt and blame is rather than like accept that and find peace with ourselves, like we tend to look for other places to place our blame and anger. That's true. And I think Snape is like, I've I've said it so many times, he just, he lacks emotional intelligence. And I think he, he, he just feels so guilty and here standing in front of him is a person who he can like finally put that guilt on. And he has a lot of valid reasons to really dislike Sirius. And now he thinks like, well, I thought hiring Lupin was a mistake and I know he's a werewolf and Sirius, he tried to prank me and Lupin was going to kill me. And like, these are people who have had it out to get me and they were involved in Lily's death. And now like I can finally put the blame on them and like tie up this loose end for myself. Totally. And and Lupin actually calls him out on it. He says, you fool, you fool. Is a schoolboy grudge worth putting an innocent man back inside Azkaban? Snape isn't even, he's completely blinded by this grudge. Lupin's right. And he like, he won't even hear it. He conjures an incarcerous spell on Lupin. And then Black started towards Snape. Oh, wait. With a roar of rage, Black started towards Snape, but Snape pointed his wand straight between Black's eyes. Give me a reason, he whispered. Give me a reason to do it, and I swear I will. I was sitting here just, like, freaking out about just the angst and the tension between all of them. God, I love these characters. Anyway. I love all of these characters. I love Snape, too. And I just, I don't know. I think that there's just so much behind each of these characters that motivates them to act the way that they do but he is he's being very thick-headed and it's like his his rage and his anger has blinded them. and, and he here he is like Hermione his whole purpose in life was loving Lily and now his whole purpose in life is protecting Harry and now he's caught Harry with the people he believes have basically led to Lily's death and who are out for Harry like I, I don't I think logic has gone out the window like I think he's just total like blind rage and we see like Harry who was just so angry himself is now willing to kind of listen to logic and reason he has more maturity in this moment than this grown adult does you're absolutely right I want to argue that I you're right one of Snape's sort of core motivations is to protect Harry throughout the series Maybe not his emotional health, but at least his physical health. Uh, Which I think, again, is because he... Because of Lily. Because of Lily. It's not because of Harry. It's because of Lily. No, It's his way of, like, absolving himself of the guilt of Lily being killed because he told Voldemort about the prophecy. Absolutely. I I 100% agree. I would like to argue, though, that in this moment, everything that he's doing is for selfish reasons. Yeah, I would agree. But this I think is it's... not for Harry's protection. He's not thinking about Harry. He's thinking about how he has just caught the two people left alive that he hates most in this world, and he wants to make them pay. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I think we can't ignore, too, Snape's connection to the Shrieking Shack. This is, yeah. of course, the place where Sirius had tricked him to go face Lupin as a werewolf and so potentially die. Totally. So his triumph feels all the more exciting probably he 
is basically being attacked by three students here. And then it's different in the movies, but the Shrieking Shack is where Snape dies. Wait, what? In the books, he dies in the Shrieking Shack. Are you kidding me? I totally forgot about that. Yeah, it's not the, it's like the boat house in the the movies. It's not the boat house in the books. It's the Shrieking Shack. I completely forgot about that. So like, there's a lot of symbolism here in this moment. (laughs) That's, That's a really good point. When he says, I'll drag the werewolf, I wanted to jump into the pages. I'm sorry. I wanted to jump in and just kick the crap out of him. And then, yeah, you're right. Harry, Ron, and Hermione all attack him, and he gets knocked out, and he hurts his head, and he's bleeding. And even Sirius is like, you shouldn't have done that. But then he says, you should have left him to me, which you're like, what was Sirius going to do? Uh-oh. There's also a line previously that says, it would have been impossible, or yeah, it would have been impossible to say which face shows more hatred when Snape and Sirius were, like, facing off. Anyway. So they attack Snape. He's out of commission for the time being. And Lupin gets to continue with his story and they get back to Peter and Ron has questions. He's like, he's like, this rat's been in my family for 12 years. He's a rat. Like, what makes you think that this guy is a man? And then they explain. So Lupin's like, serious, you're going to have to fill this in for me. Like, how did you know to come after Pettigrew? How did you know that it was Pettigrew? And Sirius is like, when I was in Azkaban and Fudge came to visit, he gave me his copy of the daily prophet. And I saw the clipping of the Weasleys in Egypt and Ron with his rat. And then Lupin looks at the rat and he goes, Oh my God, he's missing a finger. And Ron's like, yeah, he probably got in a fight with another rat. And Sirius is like, no, I know exactly what that rat looks like. I spent seven years at school or three years, probably plus years running around with him as an enemy, I guess, because what happened after the Potter's death, Sirius shows up at the Potter's house. This is, there's a ton of background information we have to give. I'm sorry. Sirius showed up at the Potter's house because he was supposed to meet Peter. Peter wasn't there and he freaked out and he thought something must have been wrong. So he went to the Potter's house, finds them dead, finds their bodies. And in fact, he's describing it in the book and it says his voice broke and he had to turn away. And I'm just like, so sad. Watch his, saw both of his best friends dead. Can't, I can't. But so he gets there, realizes what happened, realized that Peter sold them out, find, tracks Peter down, I think in London in a crowded street. So Peter set the scene for for there to be a lot of witnesses. It was very clever. And it's probably the bravest thing Peter's ever done in his life. Not like for good reasons, but but like concocted this plan to frame Sirius. Very bold. It's very bold. They're in the middle of this crowded street. Sirius tracks him down. And right before anything happens, Peter yells out like, how could you betray your friends, James and Lily? And before Sirius can even react, Peter's got his wand behind his back and he, sh- and he lets off a blasting curse, probably Bombarda or Bombarda Maxima, blows a hole in the street, kills everybody within however many feet of him. There are 12 dead muggles. Sirius has been blown back and there's this finger, there's bloody robes and this single finger left at the scene. Peter cut off his own finger to make it look like he had been blown up when really he transformed into a rat and escaped into the sewer. What a rat. Damn, what a rat. So... They, they they pull human Peter out of Animagus Peter's body. Yeah, I guess charm, apparently. I had to look up what the spell was. I was like, what is this spell they're using? Is it Revelio? What's going on? It's like an, uh, where did I write it down? Oh, Animagus reversal spell. And Peter begins pleading with every person in the room for his. Totally. I also want to say, sorry, just before this, Lupin is now working all of this out in his own brain and realizing all of this and what has happened. 
I know it's so a lot sad. to deal with so sad and then Peter shows up and you're right he's pleading with everybody for his life he's a total coward he has no loyalty he's, he's... also also I'm sorry so Luke, poor Lupin also poor Harry it says his brain was sagging under the weight of this information this has got to be so overwhelming for this kid right okay back to Peter sorry yeah so Lupin and Sirius move in like they're going to kill Peter I just love that they're just like straight up going to kill him in front of three 13 year olds. And they're just like, Harry, this, this moment is so indicative of Harry's character and just who he is as a person. And it's a big sort of joke among the fandom that Harry's favorite spells are Expelliarmus and Stupefy because he just like never moves to kill people. It's just not in his nature. And yeah. He he basically convinces Sirius and Remus to not kill Peter and to spare his life because he doesn't want to see his father's two best friends become murderers. And he has more foresight than both of them do because he's thinking if we take Peter back, then Sirius is free. Right. And uh, yeah, and, and this Harry's action here will will fulfill the prophecy will like officially fulfill Trelawney's prophecy tonight before midnight the servant will set out to rejoin his master so the servant doesn't die the servant reunites with his master and and Peter and Harry sparing Peter's life at this moment Pettigrew's gonna owe Harry a life debt from here which Dumbledore is gonna tell him later and that's gonna reappear towards the end of the series this is actually going to be spoiler this is actually this moment is actually going to be what kills Peter yeah way later this is the reason why Peter dies later but we'll explain that when we get there a couple ending thoughts at the end of this chapter before we sign off for this episode and start recording part two I just I I would pay all the money I had for them to reshoot this whole scene like it happens in the book into a film because there's so much more information and the characters like the the stuff that the characters do and say is more substantial like Lupin is really sub seems really subdued in this scene in the film and he's really not in the book like Peter's talking and it says Lupin silenced him with a look he's way more assertive in this moment in the in the book also the Death Eaters knew about Peter. Mm-hmm. Sirius says that he, that, that's a big thing that I've been wondering and had forgotten about. It's because Sirius hears them all talking in Azkaban and the Death Eaters are kind of pissed. They think Peter had something to do with the fact that Voldemort is gone. So that's another reason Peter's been hiding, not just from the blame of giving up James and Lily. He's been hiding from the leftover Death Eaters who think he had something to do with Voldemort being vanquished. There's also a really sweet moment where Sirius is talking about how he saw Harry at the Quidditch match and says, you fly as well as your father did, Harry. Crying. It's fine. Those are my end of the chapter thoughts. So that is it for part one of the ending of Prisoner of Azkaban. And (gasps) stick around for part two next week. Thanks for listening to our latest episode. As always, please subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And if you're not a listener on Apple Podcasts, it would still help us out a lot if you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. 
If you have any questions, comments, concerns about anything you heard in this episode today, please drop us a line at our Anchor profile. You can leave us a nifty little voice message there, or you can head to our Instagram at the Daily Profcast to DM us or leave us an email. Thank you.